You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 92 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchot, and this is the show for May 2021. Uh, a solo show this month. I um, well, I had a really good time talking with Antonio Rosario about um, one of my absolute favourite photographers, O. Winston Link, in uh, episode 91. Uh, so thank you, Antonio, for coming on to do that. That, w- that was such a good conversation. And in that conversation, we touched off something I'm very passionate about, which is the difference between photographing trains and photographing railways. And I'll be honest, I sort of felt I had more to say on the topic. So let's get stuck in, really. Um, I will say that I've I've broken this episode down into two very distinct chunks. Um, for the first part, I just want to expand a little bit on this concept of thinking about railways, not trains, when photographing. And then having pontificated, for want of a better word, uh, on, on those bigger pictures. Uh, I want to sort of wrap the show up then with a, a more practical um, sort of section where I just want to give you some of my tips for things that I have found helpful in uh, actually taking pictures of trains as part of a larger landscape. So trains within the landscape, sort of, which is my favourite part of railway photography. Um, you know, basically, I'm hoping I whet your appetite and then I help you satiate it. Fingers crossed, touch wood. Let's hope it works out that way. So getting stuck in, you know, railways, don't think about railways, don't think about trains. And railways are these huge pieces of human and physical infrastructure. I mean, even today, even in this modern world, it takes a lot of human beings to make a railway go. By its very essence, a railway is an extremely stretched out piece of infrastructure. Its job is to move people. So that means it has to stretch from all the different places that the people are going to be taken from and taken to. So railways are big. They're extended things. Most railways are part of a complex network. So they're not, you know, I mean, they do exist, single-line railways, and I guess they're a little bit simpler. But even then, you still have a whole infrastructure to keep whatever rolling stock it is running. I mean, yes, steam engines take a lot more work to keep up and running than a modern electric or a modern diesel, but even modern electrics and diesel don't take zero work. There are engine sheds. There are workshops. There are people who get the trains ready. There are people who drive the trains. There are people who take care of the signalling. There are people who man the stations. There are stations. Chances are very high that the railway infrastructure crosses over other infrastructure like roads, canals, rivers. So there has to be some sort of industrial, sorry, civil engineering work. There have to be crossing gates, crossing keepers. Maybe they're all automated. Maybe they're not. If they're automated, then there's people to maintain them. You know, these. This is a big thing. It's many human beings spread over a large area to make it go. So railways are much, much bigger than trains. They're also deeply embedded in their place. Right? And a part of that is because of the simple reality that trains can't handle 
steep grades, right? They don't, they're not good at going uphill very steeply, but downhill very steeply because it, they won't make it up a steep hill and uh, try to go down a steep hill and you end up with a giant big disaster, literally. They also don't turn very well. The turning radiuses on railway lines are huge. Even even on a, a mountain railway running at a little narrow gauge or whatever, even then the turning radiuses are not enough that the tra- that the railway line can hug the landscape. The landscape has to be adapted to the railway line, unless you're on a big flat open plain, I guess. So that means cuttings, that means embankments, that means bridges, viaducts, tunnels. So the 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 railway line often quite literally burrows itself into places and it certainly imposes itself on places and that physical effect of a railway line is huge because even decades after a railway line has been shut down its mark on the landscape remains you, if you go onto google earth and you look on places where there were once railways that have been gone since the 50s or the 60s as soon as you zoom out on google earth there it is, these long, straight scores through the landscape or, or you know, gently curving scores. You have cuttings and all this. I mean, it, it really is amazing how long a railway leaves a legacy behind. And the other thing to say is that the trains on a railway are actually very heavily influenced by a railway's place. Um, a train is not a train is not a train. Trains are actually, like aircraft, trains are expensive. So they're purchased with the intention that they're going to be around, they're going to be doing their thing for a very long time. It's like buying a car where if you take a bit of a chance, you mess up a bit, ah, a few years from now I'll buy a new one. No, if you buy a train, you're probably going to run it for decades. So what you need and where your railway is, is going to influence on the train you buy. I mean, does your railway move people or stuff, right? Are you a passenger railway, a freight railway, both? Is speed something very important to your railway or not? Is your railway long or is your railway short? Do you, you know, do you have the ability to run electric? Do you have to run diesel? Do you need to run a mix of both? your journeys short or long you know I mean you can have a long railway line with lots of short journeys you can't have a short railway line with a long journey I guess but you know journey length and railway length are not necessarily the same thing so you know it's there's so much going on and one of the things that makes me very cranky sometimes on the internet you can also these you know railway forums and you have well I'll be honest the, the biggest example is Americans who believe that their freight trains are the world's best because they can, you know, pull these exceptionally heavy loads at the cost of crawling along at the speed of a slug. And they'll come on and they'll ridicule those pokey little Irish freight engines. Well, it is absolutely a fact that if you take a pokey little Irish freight engine and you pop it on the line in, you know... California and say now go haul that train to New York please they're going to do very badly let's ignore the fact that it physically won't fit on the line because America has a different gauge let's just pretend we magically shrink or grow it so that it fits on the line right the Irish freight engine will not pull a lot of weight however Irish freight engine is 
a sprinter compared to American freight engines because in Ireland, the freight trains have to get out of the way of the passenger train. Passenger service is king on the Irish railways and freight has to sneak into the gap. So we don't have these long, long freight trains running these massive distances that crawl along because it's just about getting as much stuff as possible moved. No, Irish freight trains are very, very short by American standards. And they are lightning fast by American standards. They basically have to haul themselves across that track about in keeping with the speed of a commuter train. You know, they, they can go a little bit slower instantaneously because they don't have to stop at every station. But basically, they need to keep up with the timetable. They need to sneak their way through in the time it would take a passenger train to sneak its way through. So our freight trains are little pocket rockets compared to an American freight train. So if you were to bring an American freight train over, it would cause chaos on the Irish rails because it would just gum up the work. So... The reason trains look so different from railway to railway is because the problem to be solved on each railway is unique and different. And therefore, when you're investing in the rolling stock, the things that are actually going to move up and down that line, the the, the engines, the carriages, multiple units, whatever it is, they have to last for ages. So even the very trains you see on a railway are actually determined by the railway. And so they are actually a part of that bigger picture. It's not, you can't look at a train independent of its railway. The train and the railway are very closely linked, much more closely, I think, than a lot of people realise. Um, And I am, you know, I guess, okay, so the other thing I definitely want to say is that railways, they always embed themselves in people's lives. Right? Historically, they took huge amounts of manpower. To, to run. So historically, you would have little railway towns where there would be a major depot for a major railway and almost everyone in the town would be a railwayman. Unfortunately, they were mostly men, leaving that aside. And pretty much all the men in the town would work in the railways and the railways would, would be these institutions. You know, the, the things like, um, you know, everyone would start as an engine cleaner. And you would work your way up. And depending on your aptitude, the railway would train you. And the understanding would be that you would be with the railway for your entire life. And so you may end up managing a station or even the entire railway. Or you may end up as an engineer designing locomotives. Or you could end up anywhere. But you would start as an engine cleaner and show your skills and get promoted, trained and mentored through a career. Maybe you go from engine cleaner to fireman to red to engine driver, or maybe you go to a signalman, or you know, it, you the railway and the people. There was this amazing connection on a railway town between the. They really were massive institutions. That's that's not day. You know, a modern railway does not take the same amount of human capital, and the modern railway company doesn't see itself as being in a lifelong relationship with its employees. It's all much more short-term, much more transactional. So uh, I lament that, but hey, times change. But even now, even in our modern world, where people tend not to have careers for life and stuff, the railway still does employ a lot of people, right? It takes human beings to go in and run those stations. It takes human beings to drive those trains. It takes human beings to 
man those signal boxes. It takes human beings to inspect the line every morning. It takes human beings to maintain the line, human beings to maintain the rolling stock, human beings to clean the stations, human beings to feed the human beings making use of the railway. You know, human beings all over the place. And that's before you get into the fact that well, an awful lot of railways are about moving human beings, about passengers, about people. And so if you live in a place like, you know, the town of Maynooth here in Ireland where I live, well, Maynooth is the end of the commuter service out of Dublin and the first stop on the intercity service. So in Maynooth, we have intercity trains that call here as their first stop and we have commuter trains that terminate and start here. But the railway line is a big part of people's lives. If people work in the city, some will drive, but an awful, awful lot commute. Maynooth is a university town. An awful lot of students get to and from the university by trains. The train timetable will determine lecture attendance in the university, right? At, there is a train that leaves a little bit before five. Lectures are supposed to run to five, and yet at about... 20 to 5, you'll suddenly see a lot of people leave your lecture away for teaching because they're all trying to get the 5 o'clock train because they don't really want to hang around till 6. Uh, you know, it, it's all these things and people run their day around it. And when you're going the other way, if you want to go, you know, on the intercity route, if you want to go out to the west, well, there's only a train every two hours or so. So that actually does affect the cadence of the town. So, you know, railways really do, We, you know, a locality is to some extent regulated by the railway timetable, and that's still true today. So railways are a part of us, and there are a lot of good photographers who focus on the human aspect of the railway. I, part of me wishes I was good at people pictures, but I'm not. Uh, it's just not really my thing. So I have great admiration of people who, who focus on the human aspect of the railways, but that's not really me. My interests are different, I guess. Um, but I do still try to capture the people from time to time. And I will also say that I am most certainly interested in trains. Right? I always have been fascinated by trains, um, and that remains true today. But I'm fascinated in trains in the same way that a car nut is interested in engines. Right? Engines are really important. They're a major part of what makes a car a car. And trains are really important. They're a major part of what makes a railway a railway. But just like an engine isn't the sum total of a car fanatic's love of a car, train isn't the sum total of my love of a railway. You know, they are pieces in a much, much bigger jigsaw. So, looking at my own photography, it's pretty clear what I like. I like to capture the physical aspect of how a railway interacts with its landscape. Trains in their places. That is, that, that is you know, I mean, I didn't, it's not that my... It's not that I chose that as a topic and then went out to take photographs. Since I recorded with Antonio, I've been sort of looking through my photographs and analysing it and, and sort of I've come to the reverse conclusion. I took pictures of what I wanted to take pictures of and when I look at them as a whole, it's like, ah, actually, what I want to take pictures of is trains in their landscape, trains in their places. So that is that is definitely something that features very strongly in my photography. Another thing that just strongly in an awful lot of my photography, not just railway photography actually, is that I like to capture the cycle of the seasons as the seasons come and go. So I do a lot of walking, and so I'm in the same place a lot of the time. When you walk in the same physical place over long stretches of time, you become very aware of the ebb and flow of the year. You know, 
flower, you know, wildlife comes and goes, you know, flowers bud, bloom, seed, die back, sprout up again, bud, bloom, seed, die back. You have all of these cycles, you know, the birds you hear change, the berries on the trees change. There is this constant cycling of nature. And because the railway has a sense of place, the railway too has that sort of a sense of a seasonal cycle. So, you know, it's, that is, I think, what sort of drives my photography. Um, and I guess, just to get your juices flowing a little bit, you know, physically, even if you just stick to the physicality of railways, it's a lot more than just the trains, right? You have stations, signal boxes, signaling equipment of all sorts. You have various types of crossings. You have the tracks themselves can make amazing leading lines and stuff. You don't even need a train on the track sometimes to make an interesting photograph. The glinting lines can be amazing all by themselves. And then, of course, you have a lot of civil engineering, you know, bridges, tunnels, cuttings, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot to think about in terms of the physicality of a railway and capturing that. So moving on then from... You know, why I think of railways other than trains. How, what have I learned about capturing them? Can I share something? I'm hoping you're energised to go out and pick up your camera. So can I help? Um, what have I figured out? And this is just my experiences. Different photographers will have very different experiences. This is not the right way TM. I am not some sort of guru, but I've done this a lot. So I may as well share something. And I'm going to start by putting my school marm hat on. I'm going to be um, Mr. Cranky Pence for a moment. Get this out of the way because I think it's actually darn important. In bold, in all caps, don't trespass on the line. No composition, no photograph is worth your life. Don't trespass on the line. Every train photographer who acts the muppet puts pressure on railway companies to protect your frankly the muppet's life as well as the well-being of their engine drivers and the integrity of their infrastructure and the safety of their passengers so if you trespass on the line you are going to strongly incentivize railway companies, pressurize, in fact, the railway companies to put up ever uglier walls and fences and they don't just stop Muppets getting on the line, a lot of the time they also block views and compositions. I have lost access to a bunch of compositions because ugly fencing has had to be put up because gum beans trespass on the line. Don't trespass on the line. Now, depending on where you live, it's not just that you're being a nuisance to fellow photographers by causing ugly stuff to be built, it's not just that you might get killed. You also might find yourself in an encounter with law enforcement. Because depending on where the railway line is and depending on the political realities and depending on the time, I know after 9-11 a lot of railway photographers ended up getting an awful lot of unfair scrutiny because they were, oh, they have a camera and they're in a place. That makes them suspicious. But even leaving that aside, if you go trespass on the line, you are going to draw attention of the railway company and you may draw attention of law enforcement if the railway company want to go that way. And let's be blunt for a sec. If you're the wrong race in the wrong place with the wrong police force, getting caught trespassing on the line could be as fatal as getting hit by a train 
from the law enforcement response. Don't trespass on the line. Also, even if you don't trespass on the line, which you're not going to, there's more, a little bit more to it than that in order to be a good railway, you know, a decent railway photographer, as in a decent human being. Respect the property, the crops, the livestock of others who have stuff along the line side, and respect nature along the line side. Don't go and destroy the beautiful wildflowers to get into a nice composite, you know, get into a nice place. Don't respect nature. Respect the farmers growing crops along the lines. I don't destroy their crops to get a nice photograph. And don't go and spook the livestock just to get a nice picture. Right? You know, the farmers need to make a living. They don't need you going along ruining their day. People who own houses and gardens along railway lines don't need you clambering all over their walls and their fences just to get a nice shot. And don't destroy the pretty nature that we kind of want to capture just to get into a nice position. So just respect property, crops, livestock and nature. And don't trespass on the line. Okay, I'm going to stop my school by marm, right? That's positive from here on out, but I really, 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 really do want to stress, you know, be a force for good out there in the in the railway photographing community. Don't, you know, Will Wheaton's law applies. Don't be a, you know what. Right. So when you're done not trespassing on the line and not being a you know what, I would, you know, you, as with every single aspect of photography, you can get lucky. With railway photography, you can do no preparation, just wander out, hope for the best, and come home with an amazing photograph. By the laws of probability, it will happen. Not a really good strategy to come home with a lot of good railway photographs over time. Pretty good strategy to be pretty frustrated pretty much all the time. So while luck may, by pure chance, get you there from time to time, if you actually want to take good railway photographs, you need to take the time get to know the railway you want to photograph or railways you want to photograph, right? To, to capture a railway well, you have to know a railway well. And it's just, it takes time and it, you will be rewarded for that time. Some things to bear in mind when you, get to, when you want to get to know a railway. Really practical stuff. How closely do they run to time? Is the timetable aspirational or actually predictive of when trains will be where. You know, timetables are prestations. A lot of good photographs are not at stations. They're between the stations. So you should have a pretty good situational awareness of how far you are from the station to your, you know, left and right, for want of a better description, up or down, right? If you're halfway between two stations and you know it takes a train 10 minutes to get from one station to another, then if the timetable says the train should be departing either station, now you have five minutes to get your shot composed. If you don't know that, well then it's kind of harder to be ready because the train could surprise you. A lot of railway lines these days have real-time apps. So it doesn't really matter what the timetable says, what actually matters is where the trains are. So if they have a real-time app, you're onto an absolute winner because you can actually watch the trains. You know, much better. Um, you know, depending on what it is you want to photograph, is there a big difference in the kinds of trains that are run at different times of the day or of the week? You know, are weekend trains, like the shorter road or slower models and the commuter trains, the long, fast, sleek ones? 
you know, you may want to get a range of different rolling stock in your photographs. So maybe you want to make sure to be at it a range of different times because you know that in the evenings it will be the old commuter trains because they can't only run the modern ones because peak times they need to run everything they got, etc., etc. Right? So different railway lines will deploy different trains at different times of the day and different times of the week. So get to know what your railway does. How how does your railway work? How does it tick? And a really, really, really important thing is to be aware of the sounds of your railway, right? You have a nice place, but maybe you don't have a long line of sight. Can you hear the train coming? How how far away can you hear it coming? If it's a modern train, you probably won't. But railway lines still have what are called whistleboards. Now, trains don't have whistles anymore, but railway drivers still call them whistleboards. They're basically signs that say to the driver, Hunk now. And these are usually located at near, on the approach to places where farmers cross livestock and stuff. And so basically there is a sign telling the engine driver, you must hunk your horn here so that farmer Joe up the road knows what's happening. And you are guaranteed that the train will honk at the whistleboard. So... If you know there's a whistleboard three minutes away from the photograph you want to take, well then keep your ear out. You'll hear the eh, or you know whatever kind of honk your trains have, and you'll know. Aha! Okay, time to get the tripod up. Time to get everything set up. Time to take you know make sure my light measurements are all set up right. Right. The other thing is, an awful awful lot of level crossings have some sort of a bell or a siren that goes off before the barrier comes down. Or if it's an, un- an ungated crossing, as soon as the lights, the warning lights go on, you'll have some sort of bell coming on to warn people. So, can you hear that? Even vaguely in the distance. Maybe take your headphones out, maybe turn off your wonderful podcast for a bit. And can you hear a level crossing nearby? And if you can, how long until the train gets there? It's great to know, right? So, being audibly aware of your locations is very, very helpful. And really, plan, plan, and plan some more. Right? Trains literally run to timetable. You have to be ready when they show up because you are utterly powerless in this situation. You do not control the train. The train will do what the train will do. And if you want the shot, you have to be there. And part of the planning is to take a mental note of the direction of light and how it changes throughout the day, but also throughout the season. Because at different times of the year, the sun will be in different parts of the sky at the same time of the day. It will move to different angles. Like the, the summer sun gets higher in the sky than the winter sun ever does here in the northern hemisphere. So there are shots that are only possible certain times of the year, right? The reason, as we talked about in the last episode, that Owens and Link loved to do nighttime photography with his massive strobes was because he couldn't move the sun and he couldn't move the railway, and so the light would just be where the light was, but if he made the light, well, it could be anywhere he wanted, so it was his way of asserting control. But I think my way is, rather than asserting control, is just to accept my powerlessness and to, to make the most of what nature provides. So be aware that different photographs become possible at different times of the day and of the year. And so if you spot something you want to get, and you say, okay, well, this is only going to work, in a few months' time, when the sun is a bit higher in the sky, well then, you know, remember that and make it out of that and plan for that. And then when the conditions are right, take your opportunity, right? The weather's good and the, the time of year is right. Let's go ahead and get that job. Um, the other thing to bear in mind 
is that cloudy days are not necessarily a curse. They may, in fact, be a blessing in disguise. Because while you can't move the sun, and therefore a whole bunch of shots are impossible when the sun is on the wrong side of the train, so that the side near you is in shadow, so that the nose of the train is in shadow, so that you're shooting into the sun, so everything's going to be backlit. Right? There's all these things that become impossible because of where the sun is. Well, if there's clouds, there is no sun. So all of a sudden, all of those angles that you mentally say, oh, you can't shoot that because of the sun. At no time of the year, at no time of the day, is the sun in the right position. Well, on a cloudy day, it effectively is. So all of those shots are available to you on cloudy days. So make the most of cloudy days. They are not the enemy. They open up possibilities that are not available to you on a sunny day. And really, if your interest is in capturing railway photography, well... That means that it's all about finding foregrounds and backgrounds. Right? It's you're saying that you're mentally trying to take a picture of a train in its place. Well, then its place has to be as important as the train, right? So you're looking for foregrounds, you're looking for backgrounds, and if you can get them, framing features, something you can use to frame your shot left and right. So a railway shot with a train is about showing the train in a place. So the stuff around the train is at least as important as the train, if not more so. Right? So seek out those foregrounds, seek out those backgrounds, seek out things you can use to frame. You know, just as you're walking along, you're, you're, as you're exploring your line, you're looking for interesting foregrounds, backgrounds, framing features, etc. When you find your place, you know, and you're ready to take your shot, there's still a few things to consider. So, take test shots while you wait for the train. Right? Definitely, definitely take test shots. If conditions allow, and if your gear allows, manually take charge of your exposure. The reason for this is that train headlights really can bias your light meter and so if you if you do your test shot and everything's perfect but the camera set on some auto mode where the exposure changes the train shows up with this giant big headlight and all of a sudden your meter goes "Ooh, way too much light here i'll dial everything down well what you really want is actually for your camera to allow that headlight to blow out because there's no detail in that headlight you want the exposure correct on the landscape. It's a train in a place. Well, the place better be bloody well exposed properly, right? So it is a problem if the train headlight biases your light meter enough that it throws the exposure off on what is not the train. That's why I'm saying if you can take manual control of your exposure or don't shoot the train, say, from a bridge looking straight at it where the headlight is right in the camera's face because that's going to make that problem worse. If you shoot from the side, the headlights are irrelevant. They're not going to bias your meter. So, you know, more of a problem in some compositions. Not always possible, though, because if you're in typically Irish variable cloud weather where the sun could come and go in an instant, well, if you are in manual control and you're taking your test shots while there was sun out and then a cloud bops in front of the sun just as the train comes, you now have a problem and you can't respond quickly enough. You probably can't, whereas cameras in some sort of automatic mode yes it might be a little bit biased by the headlamp but you know something is still going to be way better off than you having exposed to the complete wrong weather conditions so 
on a day where the light just keeps changing, just accept the fact that you're going to have to deal with the potentially bias meter, maybe avoid getting the headlamp straight in the camera's face, and then that should be fine. And then the other final thing to say is, unless you're trying to get a motion blur, be careful not to let your exposure times drop. Even if you're in fully automatic modes, keep an eye on what's happening to your exposure times, because trains move. And unless you want them blurred, you need to keep your exposures so that really, folks, is uh, all I took in my notes. That sort of is, I think, the most important things I want to say on the topic. So I'm hoping you found it interesting. I'm really hoping I've whet your appetite and that I've given you some tips to help you take your newfound inspiration and go and put it to use. Please, please do. And I would love to see the results of your experimentations. Anyway, you will find the show notes over at lets-talk.ie. While you're there, you'll also find big blue buttons under the title Support the Show. Please, please, please do consider supporting the show if it gives you value. Um, Support can come in all sorts of forms, right? A lot of people are suffering in 2020 and 2021 and just aren't in a place to financially help out podcasts. Right? There are way more things, in, you know, there are things way more important in this world than some podcaster in the Emerald Isle. Right? So don't even feel vaguely bad if you don't want to or can't contribute money. That's just not important in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, tweet the show to your friends. Just tell someone, assuming you have human contact. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, you know, just share, right? That, that is actually, that is how a podcast spreads. It's just by people telling people, right? And to be honest, an actual recommendation from human to human is way more effective than just tweeting about it or Facebooking about it or whatever. But it, it all helps. You know, rate and review the podcast and whatever podcatcher it is you happen to use. That all helps too. It makes the show more findable. Um, And if you're in a situation where you can without causing yourself stress of any kind and where you would like to contribute to the running of this show well there are mechanisms for doing that too um i will draw attention again to the fact that this show is 100 percent listener supported there are no ads there are no sponsors i like it that way because i don't want there to be even the vaguest possibility of a conflict of interest um a photography show is only going to attract sponsors who are related to photography, which means I can't talk about some things because I will feel as if I might be criticising the sponsor, etc. So I, I don't want to be beholden to a company that makes money in photography. Therefore, I want to keep the show listener-supported, listener entirely listener-supported. Um, but I'm also in a situation where I can't really foot the bill by myself. I need a hand. And that's why there are buttons to financially support the show. There is a PayPal button to make a one-off contribution. They are great for buying new software, new hardware from time to time. Um, at the moment, I am saving up the PayPal money to buy a new boom arm. I recently moved house. And because my new podcasting room is a mirror image of my old podcasting room, my L-shaped desk literally didn't fit. So I had to buy a new desk, and I didn't think much of it. Um but my Microsoft, not my Microsoft boom arm, my microphone boom arm fit perfectly on my old desk. 
it's too short for my new desk. So I'm having to lean at a very uncomfortable angle to talk into this microphone right now. So I'm saving up for a new boom arm. I, I need a bigger one. I need, unfortunately, it means a more expensive one. Um, so that's, you know, the PayPal money is great for those kind of one-off donations, uh, one-off purchases. And then the other button is Patreon. And Patreon is where you can become a patron of the show. You pledge a small dollar amount. And every time a show comes out, you that amount gets sent to me, basically. Um, it gets bunched together and aggregated so that the PayPal fees happen exactly once for the listeners, for all the podcasts they contribute to, and only once for the podcaster for all of their listener contributions. So it's a very efficient way to move small dollar amounts without almost all of it vanishing in a puff of PayPal fee. Um, so the great thing with Patreon is it comes in every month, just like the bills do, and I pour the Patreon money into the bill hole, and they are darn close to matching up with each other these days, which is absolutely wonderful. That is that is all I really want from the show is for the for the bill, you know, money in and money out, just balance. Right? This is not my career. This is something I do for fun. I just just got to balance the books. And thanks to all of the wonderful patrons I have at the moment, the books are, for all intents and purposes, balancing. Right? Okay, my accountant may not agree that they're exactly balanced, but look, they're, you know, we're in the ballpark here, folks. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And every time someone pushes that PayPal button for a one-off donation, it just opens up the possibilities for me to invest in, you know, a better hardware or a better piece of software ever. So it's just great. And there are also affiliate links if you're the kind of nerd who needs to register domain names or buy virtual machines and stuff, Hover for the domain names, DigitalOcean for the virtual machines and stuff. You know, if you need that kind of thing, push those affiliate buttons because that way you can help the show while helping yourself. Greatly appreciate it. So anyway, I've rattled on for more than long enough. Show notes at letsastalk.ie. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of my supporters. If you like the show and you're not a supporter, think about it, you know. Don't put yourself under any stress. Don't put yourself under any strain. Really important. More importantly, money. Remember, folks, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, my name is Dave Ginsberg. I'm the host of In Touch with iOS at InTouchWithIOS.com with my co-host, Warren Sklar. We talk about iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and related technologies. We also have some great Apple guests from the Apple community that also talk to us uh, relating to any tips, any apps, any news of the day, anything that's going on with Apple. Please give us a listen. Our website is InTouchWithIOS.com.